0: I was open there at Matthew chapter 1 as we study this passage together today and we're thinking today on the theme of two trees, two trees. Something that has become very popular in our culture is researching our family trees. There are dedicated websites that you can subscribe to like ancestry.co.uk where for I don't know if it's a small fee or a sizable fee, but for a fee anyway, you can get access to all kinds of historical records that will help you to find out about the lives of your great-great-grandparents and find out where you came from. One of the most popular TV shows on the BBC is Who Do You Think You Are?, in which in every episode, a celebrity like Kate Winslet or Daniel Radcliffe is sat down by an expert and they have surprising details Uh, Given to them about their family tree. It's fascinating for some people, and maybe some of you have an eye someday when all of a sudden you have lots more time to sit down and piece together your own family tree. We might find it strange that Matthew decides to begin his gospel with a family tree, a huge list of names. Some people might even think, is this not a very dull way to start a book? Uh, when you're in school in creative writing class, you're told about how important it is that you begin with something that really hooks people's interest. You, you begin with a really exciting or intriguing first sentence or first paragraph to hook your readers. And you think, well, Matthew hasn't really done that here. He's just given us a whole list of strange sounding names. But we need to appreciate that for Matthew's first readers, uh, many of whom were Jewish people, This would have been perhaps the most fascinating way that Matthew could have begun his gospel. This list of names is what we call a genealogy. And of course there are quite a few genealogies all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And for the Jewish people, genealogies were crucially important. They were almost like the equivalent of a passport or a birth certificate for us because they were official written proof that you belonged in the covenant community of God's people, that you could claim to be part of the chosen people of Israel. The books of Nehemiah and Ezra, for example, they describe the Jewish exiles returning to Jerusalem and, and rebuilding Jerusalem and resettling the promised land or what was left of the promised land. And in doing so, they had to figure out who everyone was and where everybody belonged. And Ezra chapter 2 verse 62 tells us about a group of people who couldn't prove that they really were part of the Levites because their family name wasn't listed in the genealogies. And so they actually weren't allowed to serve as priests in the temple. And so that gives you some idea of how important uh, these genealogies were. (coughs) And to appreciate why Jesus' family tree is so important to Matthew just look at chapter 1 verse 1. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're just so over familiar with referring to Jesus as Jesus Christ that we don't fully appreciate the significance of that word. And of course it should pierce our hearts every time we hear those uh, that name of Jesus and that title of Christ. Used in the dreadful uh, use that it gets in our culture of just a swear word, Christ is not a name. It's not a surname. It's a title. It's a. It's the Greek word for the Old Testament word Messiah, which means chosen one or anointed one. That's how Matthew begins his gospel. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. The one that Jewish, his Jewish readers have been waiting for, the one who will save them and redeem them and make for them a a glorious kingdom. Whoever that Messiah was, he had to be the son of David and he had to be the son of Abraham. And so Matthew starts his book by making a huge claim that Jesus, the Jesus that he's going to tell us all about, that he is the Messiah. And to back up that clear, Matthew gives us Jesus' family tree, his genealogy. Now, the word genealogy simply means origins or beginnings. It's similar to the word Genesis. And in fact, if you took the, the words of Matthew literally in the original, it is the, the, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. So, so the, the book of Genesis begins the Old Testament with the origins of the universe. Matthew begins the New Testament with the origins of the Messiah. In fact, as we'll see, Matthew's gospel begins and it very nearly ends each time with a tree. And we're going to think about those trees together today. I want to think about three reasons why this family tree here is so important. First of all, this family tree in Matthew chapter 1, it's a family tree proving that God keeps his promises. It's a family tree proving that God keeps his promises. It's important to be aware as we begin here that there are, there are names missing from this family tree. Or maybe it would be better to say there are names that are not included. And both Matthew and his readers would have been well aware of that. Matthew wasn't trying to fool anyone by leaving names out. He, he wouldn't have been able to fool anybody anyway because the Jews kept meticulous records of their genealogies. And so they could very easily have put Matthew's family tree here down beside the official records. And they would see that he hasn't included all the names between Abraham and Jesus. But if you look at verses 6 to 11, for example, uh, they take us from the time of King David to the time of the exile in Babylon. And five of the kings of Judah of that era are not included. Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Jehoahaz, and Jehoiakim are left out. And Matthew has also been selective in the names he includes from Abraham to David. If you look at verse 5. Uh, if we were to take that literally it would mean that Rahab. And we can only assume that the Rahab he has in mind here is the Rahab of Joshua chapter 2. But that would mean that that Rahab was the mother of Boaz. Which is highly unlikely because there's about a hundred year gap between the time of Rahab and the time of Boaz and Ruth. But again, it's important to emphasise that Matthew's Jewish readers would have known this, and Matthew is not trying to be subtle, and he hasn't just forgotten about these names. Matthew is very intentional in the names that he includes here, and he is not claiming to provide—he uh, is not claiming to provide, st- uh, as one commentator puts it, statistical information but rather he is providing for us theological reflection. If you're right today, we're putting together our family tree. we would, The way our historical records work, we wouldn't want to leave any names out. But Matthew had other genealogies to hand, and he has chosen not to include um, full-blown statistics, but rather he is emphasizing to us here his theology. He has picked out some of the more eye-catching names in the family tree of Jesus. And in doing so, he's proving that Jesus can trace his family line back to one very important person, to Abraham. And that's part of the purpose of of Matthew being selective here. He's he's drawing attention to two names in particular, the names of David and Abraham. They're both mentioned right before the genealogy begins. Verse 1 And then look at how uh, Matthew concludes things in verse 17. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to the Christ, 14 generations. And so he begins and ends with the names of Jesus Christ, David, and Abraham. And why is this important? Well, of course, friends, it's because this family tree of Abraham and David and Jesus Christ is proof to us that God keeps his promises. Just consider again the words of God to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 5. It says, God says to Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And of course God wasn't just speaking in biological terms about Abraham's offspring. But also in spiritual terms. That the number of those who would be sons of Abraham. In the sense that they would share the same faith as Abraham. Because that's the definition that the New Testament gives us. Of who the sons of Abraham are. Those who would share the the faith of Abraham would be too numerous to count. Both biologically and spiritually. But God also promised Abraham that blessing would come through him to all the nations of the world through one offspring. Genesis 22 verse 18. God says, in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations be blessed. And It's important to emphasize that that word offspring is singular. That one particular son of Abraham would be the channel through which all of God's covenant blessings would come to the nations. That one offspring is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who enables all of us to become sons of God. And so, friends, not only, of course, was Jesus coming into the world, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and David, but our whole Christian faith, even today, long after Jesus has come, our faith still rests on God's promises. God has promised us, for example, that the church will survive, that the church will continue to grow. Cast your eye over our Westminster Larger Catechism question for today. That printed in your bulletin and and you'll see something of that. I will build my church, Jesus has said. And so regardless of how sometimes the church seems so feeble and so weak to us, we have the promise that it will persevere, that it will remain, that it will endure God has promised us that one day we will be completely perfect. Free from sin. Not even wanting to sin. Not even able to sin anymore. And free as well from the aches and pains and the illnesses and the sicknesses that cast us down. We were singing of this in Psalm 103. And sometimes that seems almost impossible. Maybe some of you have been dealing with pain of one kind or another for so long seems almost impossible that we'd be free of that. We're free of the temptations and the sins that we wrestle with and struggle with. But we believe the promise that God will bring it about. Sometimes it's very hard to see how God could be working out all things for good for his people. When we lose a job or don't get the job in the first place. When we share the gospel with unsaved neighbours, loved ones for years and years. Pray for them for years and years and we don't see anything happen. When we suffer pain or trial or bereavement. But by faith friends we continue to believe the promise that our God is good and in control. And sometimes perhaps even it's hard to believe that God simply accepts us into his family by faith. That there's not anything we can do to earn our salvation. That we simply believe by faith in what Christ has done. But God's word promises us that that is the case. And this family tree, the coming of Christ, proves that God keeps his promises. Remember how old Abraham was before he saw anything of God's promises being fulfilled. God willing in the new year we're going to work our way through the life of Abraham and we'll see this. But God had promised him all this land and all these people and all these blessings. And yet when his dying day came, Abraham had one legitimate heir in Isaac. And a scrap of the promised land. And yet we know today that the king of kings has come. The one who would save his people from their sins. And so friends, this long list of names that begins in the New Testament, it's part of the proof Proof to Abraham, proof to David, proof to to us as well that our God keeps his promises. But then secondly, this family tree in Matthew chapter one, it proves to us that God's grace finds all kinds of people. It's proof to us that God's grace finds all kinds of people. Uh, This genealogy in Matthew one it's mainly a list of men's names, and that's not surprising because again, that's just what was done in the Jewish tradition. They traced their lineage through the men, the heads of families, the heads of tribes, and so forth. Uh, Some records did include uh, women, but usually the records focused on the men. And that being the case, it's interesting that Matthew includes the name of several women here, especially given the circumstances of the lives of these women. The first woman mentioned is Tamar, verse 3. Tamar was uh, the daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah, of course, the the head of the tribe. He really became the leading tribe in Israel. So she was his daughter-in-law. And yet Tamar and Judah entered into despicable sexual immorality, which resulted in Judah's son Perez being born, who's also listed in this genealogy. Rahab is the second woman mentioned. Verse 5, again, we... Uh, remember her story, Joshua chapter 2, the woman who helped the, the Israelite spies. But again, she was a woman who had lived a sexually immoral life. And she wasn't an Israelite. She was a Canaanite living in Jericho. She was a pagan. Verse 5 mentions Ruth. We know her story. We studied the book of Ruth last year. Great grandmother of King David. And again, not an Israelite. A Moabite. Part of one of the most hated enemies of Israel, people who worshipped idols and as part of their so-called worship again committed sexual immorality. Look at the second line of verse 6. It says, David was the father of Solomon by who? By the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's Bathsheba. Again, another relationship defined in a sense by, by sexual sin. And Solomon himself, of course, sadly in his latter years, gave way to sexual sin. The last woman mentioned is, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in verse 16. And whilst there are no question marks, of course, around Mary's sexual purity, because she knew, we knew, of course, she was a virgin until she was married to Joseph, uh, Mary was most likely a teenager when Gabriel came to visit her. She Most likely she was unable to read. She was... A rural girl, a nobody living nowhere, doing nothing significant in the world's eyes. And perhaps because of the timing of Jesus' birth, uh, we have suggestions elsewhere in the Gospels that people question Mary's reputation for the rest of her life and question Jesus' reputation for the rest of his life. So when you think about the woman listed here, friends, in Jesus' family tree, you start to appreciate how God's grace reaches all kinds of people, regardless of what the world might think of them, regardless of the circumstances of their lives. But it would be very foolish of me to single out the women as if the men on this list are all squeaky clean. I mentioned already Tamar's involvement with Judah. That was initiated by Judah. King David initiated the adultery and deception and murder that came from his sin with Bathsheba. Even the great Abraham, the patriarch of the nation, made bad mistakes in his marriage. The incident with Hagar, the servant girl of of his household. Some of the kings of Judah mentioned on this list were wicked scoundrels. Verse 10 mentions King Manasseh. 2 Kings 21 verse 9 says that Manasseh, quote, led God's people astray To do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh at times was one of the worst kings in history. Point is friends we could go right through this list name by name. And we could find all kinds of things if we knew these people well enough. All kinds of things about them that are less than impressive. From Abraham right through to Mary and Joseph. And yet here they are. Here here are their names listed in the family tree of Jesus. And you see, this is where many of the Jews in Jesus' day had entirely missed the point of God's dealings with them as a people. Nothing was more important to some of them than that they be able to trace their names and their family line back to Abraham. As long as you could do that, they assumed... You were pure and good and righteous. You belonged in the family of God. And if you didn't belong, you were outside it. You were forsaken sinners. You, 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 you didn't have a place. But friends, the family tree of Jesus here proves that that's nonsense. The family tree of Jesus proves that we're all outsiders. We're all sinners. We're all in need of God's grace. Right back to Abraham himself who, as we'll see, was a pagan living in what one day would become Babylon before God called him to leave it all behind. The family of God, friends, is made up entirely of sinners who needed and still need his grace. And I think it's important for us to remember this in our context today. There should never be any sense in any church That some names are in. And some names are on the outside. We cherish our covenant theology. We believe wholeheartedly. That God is the God of our parents. Our God. And will be the God of our children. And our children's children by his grace. But friends no matter what your surname is. No matter how many generations. Of your family have been members of. This denomination or any other denomination. Go back far enough. And we were all pagans. Go back far enough, and there was someone with your last name worshipping a god or gods instead of the true God in the name of Jesus Christ. No one should ever be made to feel like a second class citizen or an outsider in a local church. The truth is, we're all outsiders, we're all sinners, and none of our families are perfect families. No matter how much we might be tempted at times to pretend otherwise. And in fact what brings more glory to God and what we should pray for. And and what displays the power of the gospel far more clearly in the local church. Is when lots of different people from lots of different families with lots of different last names. Are worshipping together and sharing life together for the glory of God. That's something we should pray for in our context And in all churches in our denomination and further afield. Paul says in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus' family tree, friends, is part of the proof of that. It's a family tree that proves that God's grace finds all kinds of people. It's a family tree that proves that God keeps his promises. It's a family tree that shows us that God's grace finds all kinds of people. And thirdly and finally, it's a family tree that proves that God really sent his son, our king, into the world. God really sent his son, our king, into the world. We've thought a bit about Abraham, but as I said, the other important name here is the name of David, verse 1 and verse 7. Excuse me, verse seventeen, and he's mentioned also in the in the midway point of the genealogy. If the name of Abraham stands in a sense for God's promises in general, the name of David stands for God's promise of a king in particular. One of the best commentators in Matthew's Gospel, R. T. France, he says that this family tree is essentially one about dynasty. In other words, it's a royal. Family tree. It's a, it's the family tree of kings, if you like. Just think of some of God's promises uh, to King David. Second Samuel seven verse sixteen. Uh, we read it earlier. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established. God says forever. So God promises to David that a son will come, and in the first instance, of course, that son was Solomon who would build the house that David originally had the intention to build, that temple. But God goes further than that in what he says to David. He says that the throne of your son will last forever. Well, Solomon didn't last forever. None of those other kings that followed Solomon lasted forever. And again, this is why family history was so important to the Jews, particularly after the exile to Babylon. Because as long as the tribe of Judah could trace its lineage and make sure that there were, there were ancestors of David, there were sons of David being born, and there was still hope that this one great everlasting Messiah King would come. And for generations and generations, God's people waited and waited. And for 400 years, at the end of the Old Testament era, God was silent. He didn't say anything more about the coming of the son of David. And then finally... The angel Gabriel, God's messenger, breaks the silence. Look down at Matthew chapter 1 verse 20. God's words to Ju- or sorry, Gabriel's words on God's, on God's behalf to Joseph. Joseph, son of who? David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. It goes on. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Gabriel breaks the silence and he says that the son of David, the king of of Israel, is coming. And he is coming to save his people. He was the redemption promised to Judah and Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and David and Solomon. He's the one who would redeem Israel from all their sins, as the psalmist says. Rescue them from all their enemies. Bring them the kingdom of God. And it's interesting, friends, how the name of David keeps popping up all through the New Testament. You find his name, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 25, when Peter was preaching in Jerusalem. And he was wanting to convince the Jews of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. And he quotes from the Psalms of David and he shows how they're fulfilled in Jesus. And even at the very end of our Bibles, David's name appears almost In almost the last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says to John, I am the root and the descendant of David and the bright morning star. In Matthew 21, verse 14, we're told that Jesus was healing people in the temple area and they were crying out in response, Hosanna to the son of David, And some of the people who hear this say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? In other words, are you comfortable with this claim being made about you that you're the son of David? That you're the one we've been waiting for? And of course, Jesus didn't deny at all that he is indeed the son of David. Emmanuel, God with us, the king. So friends, Matthew begins his gospel with, the family tree of the king. And yet perhaps even more remarkable than that. The more remarkable thing about King Jesus. Is not just that he came down from heaven. And was born into the family tree of David. But that he, went, he then went to a tree outside Jerusalem. To die for the sins of Abraham and David. And all his people said earlier, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a tree. It very nearly ends with a tree. Paul Tripp, a pastor, a counselor uh, from uh, from the United States, you've maybe read some of his work. Reflecting on this, he said, before the foundations of the earth, there was a tree in Jesus' future. That tree that would be used as an instrument of crucifixion. A tree that someday a, a Roman soldier would cut down and send off to a place called Golgotha. And upon that tree, friends, Jesus would die for the sins of his biological family, his spiritual family. All of us who, by faith, like Abraham and David, would become children of God. That's the amazing thing, friends, about our king. He didn't stay on his lofty throne where he was deservedly receiving The praise and adoration of angels. He came down to earth from heaven. He became an embryo in his mother's womb. He was neglected and misunderstood and persecuted. The only crown ever put upon him was a crown of thorns. And on a tree, our perfect king died the death outside the city of Jerusalem. As though he belonged outside the community of God's people dying in the place of the community of God's people. And this family tree, friends, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel proves it's part of the proof that it really happened. Don't mistake the well-known story of Jesus' arrival as an infant as just a tradition, just a nice story to tell the kids at a holiday season. It's more than that. You cannot leave Jesus as a baby in a manger. You can't dismiss him as just a good man who did interesting things a long time ago. You have to make a decision about whether you believe him, love him, trust him and follow him. As your God, as your king, the one who really came in history. The son of Abraham, the son of David and took away your sin upon a tree. funny thing is in this time of great interest in family trees, probably most of us, if we did pay the money or took the time to find out about our ancestors, we, we could well find out very little remarkable about them. And most of them were probably very ordinary, hard-working people who lived relatively unremarkable lives. Maybe some of you know of very interesting ancestors in your family. Maybe some of you have ancestors that you're ashamed of. But whatever biological family tree you've been born into, if you're a Christian today, you've been born again, adopted into the spiritual family of God. We'll think much more about that this evening, God willing. And that has happened because of what Jesus did on the tree at Calvary. And that is a gift to truly give thanks for, not just at a holiday, but for eternity. Amen.